Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Here's another amazing episode of Let's Chat for you. Please subscribe, share, and like, and leave a comment to support our guest. Thank you. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Welcome to Let's Chat with your host, Coach Binish. And I am here with another wonderful topic with my guest, Kevin. And today's topic is navigating Islamic life as a convert. Welcome, Kevin. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. It's an honor to be here. And I am very pleased and honored that you've chosen me to give uh, the perspective on what it's like to navigate life as a convert or revert. Jazakallah khair for being here. I truly appreciate your presence. Um, I would like you to introduce yourself. Okay, my full name is Kevin Omar Lopez Castellanos, and I, I can give you a brief breakdown of the name, uh, so you know, well, first name is Kevin, obviously that's the name my father chose, and some people would ask me, why do you have such an American name, because my siblings don't have American names, they have traditional Latino names, but, and the funny thing is, the only reason is, my dad liked Kevin Costner, that's it, that's the only reason, <laughs> otherwise, I would have been named Omar after my papa, that's my dad's name, Omar, that's what my mom wanted, so they had to compromise. That's also why I'm the only one of my siblings who has a middle name. And some of my friends at the masjid like to joke how, oh, Kevin, with that middle name, you already kind of have like a built-in Muslim name already, you know, mm-hmm. Omar, and it's because it's a common Arab name. And Lopez Castellanos, because see, in, tr- in Latino culture, it's traditional for the child to have their father and their mother's surnames. That's why when you meet Latinos, you usually hear them having like two last names. And part of that is because just like with uh, Arab and Muslim society in general, us Latinos also have a strong belief in upholding knowledge and the preservation of our family legacies of our heritage. So for us, having two last names signifies acknowledging both sides of where the child comes from. And it signifies two families having come together to create an entire new one. So that's why when you meet Latinos, you might, you'll usually have encounter them having two last names or sometimes like if you're if you go to cuban or dominican society they their full names might be having like surnames dating back six to eight generations wow yeah (laughs) yeah it's a joke like in in arab culture also if you uh, if you see the names of scholars Mm -hmm. they have long names yeah it's true and so give us a little background of your education and where you're heading from where you are Alhamdulillah, I recently graduated from Kennesaw State University. I graduated with a Bachelor of Science degree in cybersecurity. That's what I've been working on. Before then, uh, I earned an associate's degree in engineering from the Georgia Perimeter College as part of Georgia State University. And I initially planned to transfer to Howard in DC, but life had other plans. And uh, I had to give up admission. I had to look after my family, do some contribution. Then the pandemic happened. But alhamdulillah, everything happened the way it was meant to be. And I probably would not have discovered Islam if I wasn't in the situation I was at at the time. And then after, before, then I, I'm also a graduate of Burkmar High School, home of the Migos. <laughs> no, but yeah, that's kind of like the big celebrity thing Burkmar High School has because, you know, the Migos, it's a rap group famous in Atlanta that they went to that school. And, they, and actually, if they graduated, they would have been part of my brother's graduating class. So yeah. Three generations of the Lopez family graduated from 
Berkmar High. My brother, me, and my sister last year. Mashallah. Great. Awesome. Okay, Kevin, let's come to the topic now. So we are here to discuss your life as a new Muslim, as a convert. So um, I know that it's challenging. Before we go into the challenges, let's talk about your story. What brought you into Islam? My take on entering Islam is it's very different. I look at it as in, as, you know, even though I'm a born Muslim, but I entered Islam at a much, much later age, okay? And that's because when I actually learned what Islam is about, okay? Like formally studied the Quran, formally studied the Hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu and the Sahaba. So SubhanAllah, it feels like it's a little different for us because I'm born Muslim and you're not. But honestly speaking, I can truly relate to a convert or a reword um, at a level of entering Islam because, you know, we all may be born into Islam, but we're really not understanding what true Islam is. And we really don't practice with the essence of Islam. We just do like blind following or just actions, you know, because we have seen our parents do some things. And that comes in the way of, the true understanding as well because we we limit ourselves to just following our parents instead of following the prophet subhanallah so i know that um you entered islam uh later in life you were not a born muslim i would like you to share your story so a thing, a thing I like to say consistently is that my parents, while they may mean they're not Muslim, but they might as well have raised me to be one. And the how I describe that is because, you know, not just because how a lot of Muslims come these days, you know, come from immigrant families, but just like mine did. But this at the same time, it stems back to what I said earlier. A lot of Latino customs and beliefs and values can be traced back to Islamic principles. So us Latinos are very similar to that. We firmly believe in preservation of families, strong family values, a collectivist society, and having a and having a, a moral code. So having like a set of values, ethics, and principles with which to live by. And my parents made the did the best they could to raise me to be a principled man because some people, when you when you come when you go into an immigrant background, sometimes you will be tempted to like do certain things in order to survive or try to like take care of your family. But my parents always had this like they always firmly believe that there are just lines that you don't cross because to them they didn't because what most people sometimes fail to understand is that the children are going to be watching them. The children will eventually know when their parents might sacrifice their principles for comfort and support which might not even last because you know nothing in this dunya lasts forever eventually there's going to be struggles there's going to be some complication and if you do something that that is not principled eventually it's going to come back to bite you may not be maybe a day maybe a whole 10 years but eventually it will catch up with you and my parents always had the idea of we do now our ch our children are going to be witness to that 
So they always had that in mind to like do some, live a life in which our, our children will eventually, inshallah, eventually see as a reference point and as a manner which which to be proud to live by so i and my my mom in particular she's religious herself she's catholic my whole family's catholic aside from a few who converted to evangelical christianity but um mostly catholic my mom's really the only one who fervently who like regularly practices the religion everyone else is like more like a non-practicing or cultural catholic but in the end, alhamdulillah, I had a mother who strongly believed in instilling morals and ethics and principles into her children. And while I eventually left Catholicism for personal reasons and for intellectual reasons, I was, I'm grateful for my Catholic upbringing, giving me the foundation in morals and ethics, because it was from that foundation that I found Islam not very, I didn't find Islam very foreign. I didn't find it to be completely whack whack I because it already related to what I was brought up with so to me Islam was not like this weird foreign or was not like this like holier than thou thing it was a it was a framework with which yes there would be changes but it was ultimately something that was already in line with what I believed as a person and that's so that's that foundation and my parents are immigrants, you know, my mother is Mexican, my ma, my father is Honduran, he left Honduras at 19 and came to Mexico and eventually met my mother, and we grew up, we, we grew up very working class, but I never, like, resented it, I know some kids grow up feeling resentful of their socioeconomic place in society, but another thing, alhamdulillah, that I gained from my parents is that they always taught me to be content, because for my, because some people might think oh man we don't have this we don't have that our, our lives are meaningless without this but my parents always told me that for other people what we may seem think of something as like just standard to them it's a blessing it's a gift something that they only dream of having and my papa in particular like the way we live now electricity whenever we feel like it clean running water whenever we feel like it a grill with which he can cook stuff whenever he feels like it a TV which which he can always watch soccer games and it and to be able to go fishing when he pleases to him my papa that was those were things he dreamt about as a kid those were things he would only that would only exist in his imagination and something he would strive towards but now that he has them and I see my papa he's like a very content man who finds pleasure and contentment with the simple things in life and I and that and now that I'm 23 and I've grown up and I really came to see him better as a person. I really find my dad's uh, outlook into life and being content as something to really strive towards because he's very, he's very content to him. He just needs these simple things and he's happy. He doesn't, he doesn't desire to have like the big fancy things. He finds pleasure with what he has. And I mean, the house we live in compared to what he grew up with, it's a palace. So he, so he always instilled that I, the ideal of being content. And we know that in Islam, we're taught to learn, to always remind ourselves to be content with our blessings mm -hmm. and content with our downfalls. Yeah. So like, again, my parents raised me in an environment where I was, I might as well have been raised with 
Islamically related principles and values. But also, I grew up in a neighborhood which uh, some people have openly regarded as ghetto or a hood, and especially because when we first moved here, it was initially in a predominantly white neighborhood. But by the time I was like in third grade, all the families just started going leaving, you know, because they didn't because of start Latino families started moving in, black families started moving in, then a couple Muslim families started moving in, and they just started leaving like they didn't want to live with us. And so like my neighborhood is like a classic example of white flight. That's what you would call it white flight. Mm-hmm. And, and now it's now my my community, my my neighborhood, it's predominantly minority like and we have our certain places in which we've dominated. Like Mexicans have taken over the supermarkets. Koreans and Vietnamese have taken over the farmer's markets. Dominicans have the barbershop territory. Central Americans have the auto shop territory. Muslims have their own shops that caters to their communities, you know, like uh, food joints and Islamic bookstores, et cetera. So, and black, and black people have also have their own barber shops and their own uh, food places. So, like now, we've I I really look at my neighborhood as a place where we have a very big level of coexistence because it we have this unwritten rule, you know, you do not disrespect or or offend us, and we won't disrespect or offend you. So, like even if we don't always coalesce we have that unwritten rule of respecting everyone's place, you know, everyone's territory and what we contribute to the fabric of, of the neighborhood. But I, but also because we're still a working class neighborhood, a lot of people regard us as hood and ghetto. So, and there are, unfortunately there are those unseemly elements because I grew up with also with a lot of haram because uh, I, with my papa and my tios when I was younger, they're more careful about it now, alhamdulillah, and more responsible. But when I was a kid, not really. Like they were kind of like they didn't have inhibitions. So I grew up being surrounded with beer bottles, having to whiff c- cigar and cigarette smoke, and hearing cursing. Like by the time I entered kindergarten, I could I could fluently curse in both English and Spanish just from hearing what what I heard in my in the background. So even though I did grow up with a very uh, morally grounded, with morally grounded parents, I was still growing up in a community that had like those unseemly elements and had a bit of like gang culture and street culture and drug culture. And my parents, alhamdulillah, they did their best to protect me from that. And I guess it's also the fact that it's like we previously discussed before we started recording, I was always different because when I was a kid, there weren't a lot of Latinos, but when there were, the Mexican community in particular, they had this like bubble mentality. So like what that means is that you have to act a certain way. You have to like these certain things. You have to be this certain way in order to be accepted or you ain't one of us, you know? So in the Mexican community that I grew up with, not not including my, my parents and their very close-knit circle of friends from our pueblo, our village, but the Mexican community in a bigger sense, in the broader sense, what it meant to be Mexican meant that you had to eventually learn how to like 
cerveza or beer. You had to like soccer. You had to like partying. You had to like the nightclubs. You have to like being super extroverted and stuff like that. But my, my siblings and I, my sister and I in particular, we weren't that. We were very introverted. We were introspective. We were, we didn't want, we weren't super social. We weren't very like into like doing all these social things. We were more content being with books or with video games with a small group of friends. Mm -hmm. So Alhamdulillah, my, my sister didn't have to deal with it as terribly as I did. But unfortunately for me, I was kind of like ostracized by my own people. Like, and that, and what most people don't understand is that I was also going through racism because when I started kindergarten, I was one of only three non-white kids in my kindergarten, kindergarten class and I was bullied for it. Like I still remember when I would go to lunch and before I was on the lunch system, my parents would get, my mama wouldn't have like a small container of arroz and frijoles, beans and rice mm -hmm. for me to eat. And I was like, I would get teased for it. I would get teased for speaking Spanish. I would get teased just for having a little bit darker skin and having darker hair. And I still, one of my, one of my very most hurtful memories is that most days when I would be walking into the classroom, there would be this group of mean boys who would mockingly sing La Cucaracha the second they saw me walking into the room. And, and I wasn't the only one, like the other two non-white kids in my class, they became my friends and they also felt that same way. Cause one of them, his name was Daniel. I'm not going to tell his full name out of respect for his privacy wherever he is, but his name was Daniel. He was half black and half Thai. And he was teased for being a scrambled egg, a mixed kid. And the other one, Abhinav, he was Gujarati Indian. His parents were devout Hindus. And the, those same kids would do the whole Bollywood mocking dancing in front of him, you know? So, and because all three of us didn't speak English that well yet, yeah. we also bonded in the same ESOL class. Mm -hmm. But that's the, that's the reality I grew up with. I had to grow up with early onset experiences of racism, discrimination, and people not understanding where I came from. Mm -hmm. And when you go through that, you want to lean towards your community. Yeah. But as I stated before, even the Mexican community that I grew up with, the community that was supposedly supposed to have my back, yeah. they ostracized me too, because to them, I was also too different to be accepted simply because I didn't have like personality traits or certain likes that they identified with being Mexican. And unfortunately, that's a reality of a lot of immigrant communities, because I also have to acknowledge that it's not necessary. I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but a reality is, is that when you go come to a new country and you're building a community, sometimes you try to hold on to very, to certain things, which maybe in the home country, we're very like, minuscule they not as not really important but because you're in this new country they become and they're the things most familiar to you yeah. they end up becoming the things that you oh this is, is what defines who we are and anything outside that is is an insult to where we come from and this is something I have and I would like to whoever ends up watching this especially if they're immigrant parents I'm gonna have to ask you a very hard question and I'm sorry if this may seem offensive or disrespectful, but I'm going to have to give you this very deep question. Why did you come here if you did not want your children to live American lives? You know, you come here, but then pretend like you're still back there. And by there, I mean your, your home country. 
Yeah. Like you come here and but trying to pretend like you're still back there. Why would you why do you bother coming here anyways if you're still just gonna act like you're back there? To me, that's just ridiculous and you know, a stock foot a lie. I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm gonna have to say this. that's just stupid. I'm sorry, yeah. but that's not that's not an intelligent way of how to process being in a new country. It's just mm -hmm. not. And Alhamdulillah, even though that was the community, my parents, Alhamdulillah, never did that to me, you know, because when my dad came to Mexico, he lived in Mexico for 10 years before we came to the U.S. So he already had to adapt to a different culture because most people don't know. Honduran mm -hmm. culture is distinct enough from Mexican culture that there is going to be that culture shock. We may speak the same language, but there are still the differences in like regional terms or and accents. Mm -hmm. So people can still tell that you come from a different country. And my dad had to go through that adjustment process. And when my mom got together with my dad, she had to learn the different intricacies and little minute details of Honduran culture that make it distinct from Mexican culture. So by the time my parents came, brought us here, they had already learned that hard truth. They knew. They knew they were be able to recreate Mexico or Honduras when we came here. So they did not even make the attempt. So like they did the, they made it, they did the effort to educate me and to introduce links to my background, like with food and with my language, but they never like forced it down my throat because they knew they were, they knew my siblings and I, in one way or another, we, they knew we were going to wind up being different. So that's why, alhamdulillah, I didn't have to deal with that with my parents or their very close-knit circle. But with the broader Latino community, I did. So like I had both, I had to face rejection from both sides. Yeah. The white, the white American side that did not accept people different from them. And the community that is supposed to have your back. But unfortunately, I was also too different for them. So I was like ostracized on both sides. And I went through severe identity issues. And it's still something that I'm processing to this day. Like, mm -hmm. alhamdulillah, I had to do a lot of the major work when, when I was 20, when I was really had to like really reflect on why I have this, these deep-seated issues with my identity, my cultural identity. But at the time, I was just like confused, you know. I was made to believe like somehow the way I was made me a freak. It made me someone who was not going to be accepted. So I had, so I went through a cultural apostasy. So I made a, a sincere effort to Americanize. I, I lost my accent by age eight. I refused to speak Spanish with my parents. I convinced myself that the only way I was going to belong was to make myself as American as possible. And in the end, look, I am, I still some, I, I'm not going to lie. I still hold a teeny bit of resentment towards my own community for doing that to me. But at the same time, I acknowledge the part I played in it. They did that to me, but I chose to react to the situation the way I did. I have, I have to take accountability there. But, and so when I was, because I was going through that, I adhere towards things that have a background of being like different. So like I valued things that were different. So I was always like, and my parents, alhamdulillah, they also taught me to be respectful towards different cultures and to gain wisdom and perspective from different cultures. So I was able to make quick friends with people from all different places because immigrants started coming in in troves by the time I was in middle school. So 
by the time I was in high school, I had friends from Vietnam, Korea, Nigeria, Ethiopia, Senegal, uh, Pakistan, etc. So I was able to find the similarities there, but I also had that, still had that very deep-seated issue with my own background because I had all this built-up hidden resentment mm-hmm. stemming from how I was treated when I was a little boy. And, but going back to what I was saying, I valued, so I was like, I found refuge in basketball. I found refuge in hip hop and rock music. I found refuge in streetwear culture because when you really look at the history, those, those things have a origin of being cultures, subcultures that went against the grain. As a result, they themselves have a history of feeling ostracized, of being rebels, rejects, outcasts, misfits. Mm -hmm. And I identified with that because I myself felt like an outcast or a misfit because in my own culture and in my society. So I adhere to those things. So like when I was a kid, I was listening to Guns N' Roses and Eminem. I was was into skateboarding for a little bit. And I was like, there were time, there were also points in my life where I was like super crass and very rebellious and had very strong political opinions simply because I didn't like being forced into anything because if I felt even a whiff of something that seemed authoritative or saying you have to be this way I was going to fight back with a vengeance I was going to fight back with malice because that was that stems from how I grew up yeah and again when you grow up in the streets the even there you eventually notice that alhamdulillah my parents kept me protected from that and they also knew i had a studious nature and they encouraged it they they preferred to have a kid who was not very social but was like use that as a strength to build himself up intellectually emotionally and also in a way my very introverted nature kept me protected from the harams of hanging in the streets getting involved with the wrong crowds and getting into drugs and alcohol and the violence that was happening in my block. So I, I have a very, I grew up with a lot of like contradictory notions, yeah, but, but alhamdulillah, I think your parents support and the way they raised you has played a huge role in your personality. And with the culture thing, I try to tell parents that the way, the way you cannot take out your homeland from yourself, from within yourself, right? You cannot, you cannot take America out of your child's life, right? And from their personality, because they're born and raised here, they're definitely going to have uh, to adjust in this uh, country um, in a very different way. They're going, they're going to grow in a different way. They're going to learn in a different way. You know, there's this different environment, different surroundings as compared to what we were raised in. And um, honestly, if I wasn't, if I didn't come here at the age I did, I was around 22, I might probably be the same way, you know, culture is not a bad thing. It's a beautiful thing and it can incorporate into so many different uh, lifestyles, right? Uh, Alhamdulillah. So it's beautiful that um, our kids are aware of, the kinds of food we like, the kinds of clothes we wear, the way we treat our families, the way we treat our relatives and all of that, alhamdulillah. And then we, these are all good things. These are all very good things. And we can very easily 
incorporated in an American lifestyle. There's nothing wrong with that, right? SubhanAllah. So um, up until here, this you, you talked about your high school. You talk up until your high school. What happens after that? And how did you actually got introduced to Islam? And what made you, what inspired you to uh, choose yeah. that at your, as your faith? Okay, so most people like to attribute it to one big thing, but if I'm going to be completely honest, look, when I really reflected on it, it was like a million little things. Mm -hmm. So like, like, for instance, in high school, I had a lot of Muslim friends, of course, that there's that and they would teach me a bit about the religion and in class at school, you they would have to give you like a very, it's not very informative, but it's still a very basic prim primer on what exactly is the religion of Islam. And alhamdulillah, when I was in 10th grade, I had I took AP World History. And my favorite unit of that class was during the golden age of Islam. So I was learning about the Abbasids and the Caliphates. And also, I really liked this show called Cosmos, the mm -hmm. updated version with Neil deGrasse Tyson. And they had a whole, they've had several episodes when they would talk about prominent Muslim scientists and doctors. So like Al-Haytham, Al who was considered father of the scientific method and the one who did who confirmed that light travels in straight lines, you know, alhamdulillah. And I would learn the reality of how for when, for a whole millennium, while Europe was busy tearing itself up with religious dogmatism, it was Islam that preserved, collected, and pushed knowledge forward. So like, while Europeans were busy burning books, it was the sultans and the caliphs who would fund expedition to preserve, translate, and distribute books. They would make advances in medicine and mental health that is that were not rediscovered until the 19th century in the western society and actually at the end of this at the end of this interview i would like to share with you certain pdfs and videos of muslim contributions and they actually that relate to modern muslim struggles like mental health and and the pdf of this book by imam arshad of Masjid Jafar, because I feel like that book is also very beneficial to young Muslims who are dealing with these same things. So at the end of this video, I would really like to share these. Sure. And you could put them in the description for for our young audience below so they can have access to this. Yes, definitely. So, anyways, back to what I was saying. Then, so yeah, I so by the time I finished high school, I already had this deep respect for the Muslim society and it's Muslims in general, because I was someone who valued knowledge because it was also around that time that I was becoming increasingly disconnected from Catholicism because what I, I suffered some personal tragedies and, you know, many people, when they go through personal tragedies, they end up having a mindset of like, why did this happen? Why, why would God allow this to happen? So I was in that mindset. And because I grew up with a very false idea of what God is, I didn't have this full understanding. It was easy for me to just leave Catholicism and I was angry. I was confused. I was grieving these losses and I was desperate for something to blame. So I blamed this like false idea of what I thought God was. So from 16 onwards, I was going through, I went from irreligious to like full-blown I wouldn't say atheist or agnostic. I would just say anti-theist. So that's the more proper term. So I wasn't like, I did. I knew in my heart, I still believed in God, but I was so angry that I was trying to convince myself. I made an active effort to delude myself into thinking that God is not real. 
and I tried to force that ideal onto other people's throats. And I, and this is a very, I really feel a, it's a source of shame for me nowadays, but there are times where I would make active efforts to attack my own mother and her religion saying, and I would use historical references such as the Crusades, the murders of Giordano Bruno or the house arrest of Galileo. I would say, mama, how can you be part of this who, are, who have done these terrible atrocities? And I would come up with any form of evidence just to like attack religion in general and make my mom feel terrible for believing in something which I saw as terrible. So like I was in this mindset where at this point I was, I saw religion as something that held people back. I saw religion as something that made people bigoted, made people violent. And I general, I overgeneralize, you know, I used a few stories to generalize any, any person who had any form of religion in their hearts. So that was a very dark period in my life. And it wasn't until I was around 20 years old. It was the height of the pandemic. I ran into this video on the Vice YouTube channel that talked about a growing number of Latinos embracing Islam. And I thought, huh, that's pretty interesting. But I didn't think much about it after that. It wasn't until a year later. So to be specific, it was the last day of it was the last day of Ramadan in the year 2021. Yes. It was it was May around May 2021. It was the last day of Ramadan. I was working at Waffle House. It was a rainy day, but there was not a lot of people. And that's a very significant thing because at the Waffle House that I grew that I worked at, rainy day equals guaranteed busy day but that wasn't the case now looking back i feel like that was a very big sign that allah was beginning to make, put the steps towards islam so by the, so just another reference by the time that that happened i had mostly recovered from the anger and grief i was suffering and i was beginning to welcome a sense of spirituality back into my life so that happened around when i was 18 or 19 by then most of my wounds had healed and I would I explored Christian my tried reconnecting with Catholicism. I tried Christianity. I looked into Buddhism. I looked into Hinduism. And then two weeks before that, I looked into Mormonism. But none of them gave me these answers. And I just thought, like, maybe I'm just content to be one of those people who says they're not religious but spiritual. And I thought I was going to be content with that. But like I said, it was the last day of Ramadan. It was May 2021. A Muslim brother by the name of Abdullah came in. He came in with his friend. They, it was, they were still fasting that day. It was still the daylight. They said, they made it clear. Hey, uh, is there a place where we could sit down? We're not going to be eating because it's Ramadan and we're fasting. And we just need a place to discuss business because it's raining outside. And I already had a little bit of knowledge about the concepts of fasting during Ramadan because of my Muslim friends. And so I understood. And I was respectful. And I said, yeah, sure. Uh, we're not busy right now. I'll spare you a table. I gave them the table and they were very grateful towards me and they still ended up tipping even though they didn't order anything. But alhamdulillah, later, me and my coworkers got curious about them and we asked them some questions because they were also curious about Islam. And by then I remembered what I saw from that Vice video about Latinos who were converting and it reminded me of that. And I thought, hmm, wow, after that experience, I was just interested. So I reached out to some of my Muslim friends and alhamdulillah, it was, her name was Paola. She's a Latina convert like I am. By the time I contacted her, she had been Muslim for a year already. 
we knew each other because we both went to perimeter college together under the same scholarship, but she ended up transferring to Kennesaw after our first year. I stayed for two years. So we reconnected and she started giving me Dawa and she gave me and she encouraged me to research Islam, research the Islamic roots that happened in Latin America. And I was able to find, wow, so much of what I was, I grew up with was in line with Islamic principles. It can be traced back to Islamic principles. And I just found it interesting. So Paola, she eventually set me up to meet with um, Asad Khan of ICNF, the Islamic Center of North Fulton in Alpharetta. Eventually, I made the trip up there. I would drive 40 minutes to go there. He invited me to attend a Juma prayer. And that was when, that's like the very critical moment when my journey began. So I went to the Friday prayer. I, already, I was already taught the concept of how to make wudu and what are the basic movements of prayer because I've seen a couple of Muslim shows and I knew about the basic movements of the Salah and I was interested in that. So I would go there and I attended the Juma prayer and I just sat down and I was invited to like to just observe or if I wanted, I could participate. And the, I, still can't, I still can't really fully describe the feeling of what it meant when I heard the Adhan for the first time in person. It's mm -hmm. just a very, very Im impactful experience just hearing the Adhan for the first time and it had that effect on me. And then when I was invited to join the Salah line, I did my best to incorporate that. And there's just that feeling when you really put, when you put your head down in sujood for the first time. And it was, and I don't know what it's like for kids when they're growing up. Maybe it's just like, oh man, this is what our parents are doing. We'll just do that. But when you're a person who's never had Islam in their life, and I just like felt what it was like to be in sujood for the first time for genuine time, it felt like I was really at peace. I felt a peace in submissiveness. For so long, I thought that the way to find peace was to rebel, was to, was to go against what people tell you to do, that you can find a peace in your own. But there, I found a peace in submitting. I found a peace in accepting. After the Jumma prayer, Imam Asad took me to a room in the, in the masjid. It was their conference room. And I ha already had this like, notebook filled with like 15 questions about Islam and just like you I was like one of those kids I, I was that person who wanted, who wanted to go candid so like a lot of my questions in that notebook were to ask very tough questions on Islam specifically Islamic society like for instance one of the questions was how like I didn't believe Muslims were terrorists but how do you I, I did ask the big question how do you what is the real Islamic principles and why do some people feel like they can use that as a justification for terrorism? You know, then I also ask questions on, yes, I asked the big question on LGBTQ plus. I also, because I was still a supporter of that movement and also because it was one of my big vocal pieces of evidence of saying, this is why religious people are bigots, are intolerant, not, not good people because I was, I, again, I still have this very strong belief of that if you're not going to be accepting a person, any person, I'm going to fight back against you because I grew up, I had to deal with that myself. I grew up facing rejection from all sides. So seeing someone else go through that for any reason, I was going to fight back with a vengeance. That was my mentality at the time. Mm -hmm. And, but every question I asked, Imam asked it, answered very beautifully. 
and he gave me a gave me the very solid reasons why and he was candid with me he actually acknowledged that yes the ummah has problems yes people take islam for granted people will say this and say it's islamic you know he was not at all blind or or didn't he didn't he wasn't a state he was not in a state of denial for that and he explained to me that there are going to unfortunately there there are going to be people in the soma that's just the reality of every religion there's going to be people in there who are hypocrites that's just that's just truth but when he truly explained to me what the quran says what the sunnah says and as i began my journey it just made more and more sense to me so i left that masjid with 30 answers to my 15 questions and a quran and for the next two months i would make regular trips up and down in alpharetta to the masjid just to ask questions to talk with with the imam and every question i had regarding prayer regarding fasting regarding why do you pray five times a day why do you why do you give up these certain things why do you abstain from this why do you encourage this and every answer fell correct but i think another turning point was when i was reading the translation of the quran that he gave me and i came into the verse that comes right after uh, ayatul kursi that there shall be no compulsion in matters of religion and that had an impact on me cuz i've had to grow up my entire life with stories of and unfortunately in the catholic environment i grew up with I've had to deal with people of the elements saying you do this cuz I tell you but no in the Quran Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala specifically states no person has the right to instill in you with religion basically it means you have to come to it on your own you have the right to decide the right path even if you don't end up choosing the right path Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala still grants us that mercy us the mercy to make our own choices. So yeah. that was something that was very impactful for me. And eventually, after 2 months of researching, of reading, of talking with and I would travel to other masjids and get their perspectives and I during that time I was also given videos by Paolo on how to make wudu and how to pray. So I did a trial run of like if I'm really going to be serious about considering Islam, I'm going to find I'm going to live like a Muslim. So I would do the five salah a day. I stopped eating pork at that time. I was already giving it up a lot for health reasons, but I pork off. I stopped. I made a sincere effort to stop cursing. I tried. And I was already against alcohol and drugs because of the experiences I had growing up. So I was like very anti against that. I was very against all that. And I was also against nightclubs and all that that very haram behavior. So combine that with what I was adopting and I realized I was really living a disciplined life which is a type of life that I love because I value discipline I value routine I value commitment to something like true commitment to an actual belief that was something that was just incredible to me so after two and a half months I made the decision to convert to Islam and so it was August 22nd 2021 of just a couple days before my my 22nd birthday If we're talking Islamic calendar, it was the 14th of Muharram that that day, and I took my shahada. And actually, I had the support of my family. See, when I was researching, my my mom got curious where I was going, so I told her. She was the first person I opened up to, and 
she accepted me right then and there. She told me, Kevin, and I translate this from Spanish, Kevin, what matters to me is that you have God. To her, it didn't matter what religion I was. To her, what mattered was that I had a sense of religion, of religion, that I had a religious life, that I had a life of ethics, of morals, of principles. And so she said, si el Islam es lo que necesitas para, para tener ese, estoy feliz. If Islam is what you need to have that kind of life, I'll be happy. So to her, she would rather have a son who is a practicing Muslim and who actively makes the effort to be a good person, to do good things, to act righteously, than a non-practicing Catholic son who was one of, who was rebellious, who was, uh, who was occasionally dropping a, a curse word every two seconds, who was who could potentially get into trouble because also during that time in the pandemic, I was, I was in a very depressive state. I was overweight. I was getting depressed. I was also in a state of like nihilism at that point. I was wondering what's the point of everything. And I was this close. I'm not going to lie. I was this close to finally saying, you know what? There's no point in life. Why not? I might as well just get drunk and high, you know? And for so long, I held strong to the belief that I was never going to do drugs, that I was never going to do alcohol because of what I experienced my family doing, because I have family who have either done that or are still doing that. And I was like, conv I convinced myself that at the very least, I'm not going to go that, down that route. But I was in such a deep, dark hole that I was beginning to lose what little morals and principles I had. And that was the point where I said, I need to do something about this. So I was already working on my physical and my mental health, and I was in a good place there. But what led me to eventually take that journey to Islam was acknowledging that I was missing something spiritually. I didn't, for so long, I denied needing spirituality, but I, I was never complete unless I had a spiritual portion of peace in my life. And after researching many religions and looking at different values, I found that peace and contentment with Islam. And eventually, I told my sister, I told my brother, my sister-in-law, my niece, they all completely accepted, Kevin, you're gonna, you've made the decision, you're going to want to convert. Okay, and we're happy with it because they, I feel like they were also starting to see that I was beginning to make the effort to really become a better person. But I was scared to tell my father because my father's not a hateful person, but it's like we discussed, a lot of immigrant parents don't like change it's just a fact but also and when I finally told him he was he was not hateful but he was he felt like I was rushing into it I was begin, I was like just two months like because he had known me as this very rebellious child who was like a very anti-religion anti-establishment anti-following what someone tells him to do then all of a sudden he's willing to submit to something maybe he had the little a little bit of a minute where he thought I was being brainwashed, but no, I feel like also maybe he was just scared because, you know, we, we didn't come here through the most legal of means. I'm DACA. Alhamdulillah, I have a legal status and my mom has a green card now. But um, back then we were, we were also dealing with the fact that we could get busted at any point. And my dad, he was probably just scared because, you know, I'm Latino. I'm an immigrant. I'm a kid of immigrants. I was a very rebellious kid and I had strong social and political opinions. Maybe he was, I, I, I would like to believe that perhaps he was just scared that by becoming Muslim, 
I was going to be adding another target onto my back when I already had plenty of those as it is. And that's a reality. When Mm -hmm. we accept Islam, when we live a Muslim life, Mm -hmm. whether it's for a sister wearing a hijab or a brother openly wearing a a shawar kameez or a thobe out in public, we are putting a target on our backs. Mm -hmm. And that's a reality that's been part of the deen since it began. The second Islam came was revealed to us by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, it's Muslims had to face the reality. We were going to be targets simply because we believed in la ilaha illallah and Muhammad rasulullah, you know? So, but eventually, alhamdulillah, my dad come around, did come around, but he was not there at my shahada. But my entire, the rest of my family was. They actually bothered to drive all the way to Alpharetta to the master to ICNF to have me to watch me take my shahada they were all there supporting me alhamdulillah and so yeah the night of the 22nd of august right after maghrib time i took the shahada and i became muslim and it's been almost two years since then alhamdulillah amazing so very beautiful story mashallah but the story doesn't end here right um from what I have noticed um, from other converts and rewords that um, at the time of Shahada, when you're taking Shahada, everybody's around you. All the Muslims are around you. They're happy. They, they congratulate you. Uh, but what's after that? All of them just go back to their lives, right? They're busy with their own lives and daily routines, and they forget about it forget about you, like forget about a person who just entered Islam and now he needs support and now he needs a community with him or her. Um, So what were your challenges? I would like you to voice your challenges or uh, what you see other converts facing. When you enter Islam, how do you fit in to this ummah, to the new identity you have just formed or or found? how do you find other Muslims around you behave? Are they ex- accepting of you? Are they uh, welcoming? Or are there two different groups? What, what was your experience? And if you know other converts and they have shared some, some of their experience and go ahead, share that with us too. Yeah, absolutely. So the thing was that yes, in my hometown of Lawrenceville, I did, I did deal with that. I did try going to a masjid near my hometown first, like, you know, Greenview Madani Center and the Georgia Islamic Institute. And it was, there was one try, the, the one time I did try Medina Institute first, but there were also multiple different factors because like one, the pandemic was still around at that time. And there, were, there was not a lot of people who were going to the masjid for, for Juma. And if they were, there were still not a lot of masjids that were open for Juma. So I had to, I had to be, I had to be patient with that, but also because, yeah, they didn't voice it openly, but there was that like silence, like where I tell them I'm a Latino convert and they're like, okay, that's cool. And then, then just like, they don't talk to me. They don't, there's not a lot of people who are willing to teach me. And it seems like they don't, they don't really have that much knowledge of themselves. And when it came to Medina Institute, it's, this wasn't a, this is not, this is no criticism whatsoever, but for a minute, I actually thought it was like genuinely abandoned because when I visited, 
that one time, our sign was still very faded and it looked like it had not been tended to for years. And when I tried to get inside, there was no one there. And it was it was during the day, like Bilhur or Asr, and this was the, the pandemic was still around. So I had I genuinely thought it was abandoned. Like I thought that it, the place did not exist anymore except on like the internet. So I would, because I didn't- timing, During Salah times, they close. A lot of the masajids do that, right? Yeah, I didn't know, but I didn't know that at the time. Yeah, yeah. And so because of that, and because I didn't feel really welcomed or comfortable in the other masjids in Lawrenceville, I would willingly go for a 40 to one hour drive to, to ICNF or RCM, like Roswell Community Masjid, to go for Juma there because there there was a community that to a level was very was still very accepting and was willing to teach me certain things and but ICNF yeah eventually the the whole uh new convert thing just faded and they went back to their lives and really it was only Imam Asad who still provided me support and gave me books and gave me knowledge basic knowledge on how to be a Muslim and I would read the books he gave me and I would use that to build like my basic knowledge of fiqh and Aqidah. But then I discovered RCM through another brother there who told me, because he knew I was a cybersecurity student. He invited me to his home and we had a nice chat. And eventually he told me to seek out RCM because over at RCM, they actually have a very active and very welcoming convert community over there. It's, they're still have, it's still majority born Muslims, but they have such a big convert, much bigger convert population there. So I would go there and I felt an even greater level of, of acceptance and energy for, than I had in ICNF. So I began going to RCM more for Jumma, And eventually uh, I met, a, I met a, my brother Ibrahim. He was a Georgia Tech student, but he got me in touch with the MSA group chats when I couldn't previously access them before. And so he got me in touch with the MSA at Kennesaw. And eventually, RCM restarted their new Muslim club, which is this club which once a month, a lot, all the different converts and new Muslims would come together and have like a monthly meeting of discussion, uh, like a support group, and also ba teaching basic Islamic knowledge to new converts and getting and having like a safe space for new converts to share their experiences and gain Islamic uh, knowledge and to figure out what's the Islamic way of dealing with our certain situations, like with family or our day-to-day -day life or how to balance work with our Salah. So I was there and my big, the big men, the leader at the time, my, one of my mentors, Amina Rodriguez, she herself is a Latina convert and she actually has 20 years of experience being a convert to Islam, being Uruguayan, but she grew up in the Dominican Republic. And so, yeah, and she recently completed a bachelor's in Islamic studies from the International Open University. You know, mashallah, that's a beautiful thing to accomplish. So she has like two decades of experience. So when I was like still figuring out how to balance my cultural identity with my dean, because alhamdulillah, I was in a much better place with my cultural identity because college really allowed me the opportunity to meet other like-minded Latinos and get a better view, a more holistic view on how to take the best parts of my culture and add it to my own personal belief so I was in the process of healing from that cultural apostasy I put myself through but Islam is what really completed that healing process and it was sister Amina who really provided me with 
thorough guidance and gave me access to resources and actually gave me Spanish dialing back home to give them up to my parents so they could see the Quran and the Sunnah for themselves in their native language because most people don't understand. A lot of Latinos would are actually very in line with Islamic principles. They just don't, a lot of them don't speak English or Arabic. So they don't necessarily have people around there to teach them Islam in their native language. So there's not a lot of Spanish resources, but over at RCM, there was quite a bit of it over there. And, and Amina, my sister Amina gave it to me openly. She gave me translations of the Quran in Spanish. She gave me pamphlets in Spanish. She gave me, she also gave me books on little duas and further knowledge of the Salah. She was very open with giving me this information to not only get for myself, but to bring to my family. And it gave, it's from those meetings at RCM that I really began feeling a better sense of community, but it was still a long drive and I couldn't always go there whenever I felt like it. But, but that was, again, that's where the MSA at Kennesaw State came through for me. Cause by the time I joined that, I was only a month into being a Muslim. I was like still very fresh. I was like wondering how am I going to fit in? But alhamdulillah, I found a couple friends in that group who were really like supportive and really gave me the encouragement. And even though I couldn't see them personally a lot, they would always send me videos. They would always send me little bits of advice. And eventually during Thanksgiving of that year, so I was like, so it was November, 2021. It was, we call it a Friendsgiving. They were having a Friendsgiving event. And it was there that our Asad Khan, our Imam Asad Khan, he was invited to speak at that event. And then he and I got to talking and he told me that he was from Medina Institute. And I thought, then I said, wait, I thought that place was abandoned. He said, no. I was like, what? But, but I went there, no one was there. I was like, oh yeah. It's just that not a lot of us go there at that time. So he cleared it up a lot and we only spoke for 15 minutes. And we also did tackle a lot of like those big, questions that we go that we are probably going to discuss here in this podcast on Islam you know like LGBTQ and I was still like I was even though I knew the Islamic position on it I was also still one of those people who wanted to be more compassionate about it because you know that's what you're supposed to do yes we are not we have our very strict position Islamically speaking on these matters but it's a matter of approaching it from a very compassionate place that we're able to get our message across so that's what part of what we discussed and eventually two weeks later I called up Medina Institute's number to ask what were their Jumma times and surprisingly Imam asked said we only spoke for like 15 minutes at that time and yet he knew like wait is this Kevin it was like what he memorized my voice like I don't know how and this isn't a shade to brother Asa, but he can be sometimes like a little bit um he I'm pretty sure he, and he's openly acknowledged this, he can be sometimes a little bit um, absent-minded. You know, he's got a lot going on, so, you know, that's just something natural. And he says he sometimes has short-term memory problems. You know, it's just a matter of being human. We all do, yeah. But somehow, alhamdulillah, he he still recognized my voice from only 15 minutes of talking and then one phone call two weeks later after that. And eventually, I attended the Juma, and then he invited me to their Friday night events. And mm-hmm. that's where I, I finally felt like, okay, I found my home. I found my home masjid. I found a place where I'm going to go regularly. And that was Medina Institute. So Alhamdulillah, 
And because even though it's not as like big as Roswell community masjids, they still have a pretty active convert community here at Medina. And they have, we have like a very diverse Oma here, you know, that's and that's what, what I, that's what I highly value because for me, I'm just not one of those people who believes in like, oh, you, you got to stick with your own people because, because uh, I learned the hard lesson, even your own people, some some of them are just going to turn your back, their backs on you for being a little bit different. So for me, I value differences. I value different perspectives. I value diversity. And that's what I found with the community in Medina. I found a place where I was accepted. I found a place where they accepted me as I am. They gave me the, they had the, you guys have the patience and the adab to properly teach me Islam and to help me grow as much as I like at the pace that I'm most comfortable with. So it was there like December, November, December, 2021, Alhamdulillah, that I be became a part of the Medina Institute family. Mashallah, I 100% agree with you on that. Mashallah, the first time I entered the masjid, I felt exactly the same. Alhamdulillah, I, it's just sad that I live a little far from there. So I am not very regular. Attend, uh, you know, I don't attend very regularly. Um, but I am a student of Medina Institute, alhamdulillah. And I, I love it. And every time I go there, I feel like a part of it, even though I rarely go there. But I feel like a part of the family. Uh, mashallah. I love the diversity there as well. Yeah. It's true. And I have a blessing because I only live five minutes away from Medina. So I can like, I can go for... As, as much of the Salah as I want, I get to go for events and for the halakas. And currently now I'm, I'm the Friday night. I'm in Quran class. So alhamdulillah, uh, I joined five months ago. By then I had only gone as far as memorizing the Arabic alphabet, but Imam Asad in the course of five months got me from there to graduating to the Qaeda. And I'm now working my way through, I can actually read a Mus'haf and I'm working my way through Surah Al-Baqarah. So alhamdulillah i'm very grateful for that i i attended the halakas i love going for the friday night events and our lectures and i make an effort to try to volunteer there as much as i can i'm part of the weekend foundational class from there i found a really supportive community where i can not only just like practice my deen but where i can actually learn it properly because mm -hmm. you know as it says in our in our motto compassion education and then illumination yeah, yeah you cannot have one without the other two you cannot have all three with that each of them individually yeah yeah mashallah so you have found your people now let's say that absolutely because even though i've gone i now have a much better relationship with my cultural identity and with the latino community in general i have, i still acknowledge you know there are just certain things about them that I'm not in line with. Same mm -hmm. thing where I'm not completely in line with the American lifestyle. Yeah. Or like, they're just elements of the hip hop culture, the rock culture. They're just, they're, they're not, they don't fully, they're not, I don't feel fully resonant going all in in those communities. They're, they're a part of me. Like, like you see me now, I'm kind of, I, I wear street, I still wear streetwear. Like if you see at the masjid, I'm known as like among the younger brothers as, oh, that's the cool brother who always wears dope sneakers. <laughs> like that's like my reputation and this goes back to the youth which i'm going to explain more thoroughly in future questions but yeah 
there I was able to find like people who were able to accept me as I am and help me develop my own Muslim identity. Because when you see me at the masjid, sometimes I'm just going to wear my streetwear or sometimes I will be wearing my thobe, but I'm also combining it with like my hoodies and my sneakers. So I'm like, I feel accepted. We're like, yes, this is a kid who wears Islamic clothing, but he also combines it with the elements of how he grew up, where he's going to wear his snapbacks. He's going to wear his sneakers. He's going to wear his, he's going to talk with a slight hood, hood accent because, you know, this is a kid who grew up in the hood. This is a kid who grew up with the hip hop culture, with the rock culture, who grew up with a Latino background, who grew up in the streets. So from there, I found a community that does not just like me for one part of me. I have like you guys accept every part of me, the whole Kevin, the whole picture. Exactly, exactly. Subhanallah. And that's how Islam is. When you enter Islam, you uh, enter as a whole, you know. Um, there, there are good parts of you that enter into Islam. There, there are bad parts. And then you work through it. And then, mashallah, you know, what you're discussing about your dressing and the way you talk, if it's not going against Islam, what's prohibited is the foul language. And what's prohibited it is being rude to people. And when we take care of that, we're good. You know, it doesn't really Absolutely. matter how you talk or how you dress if you take care of the guidelines, inshallah. So that's the beauty of Islam, subhanAllah. Please subscribe, share, and like, and leave a comment to support our guests. Thank you.